The Daily Rios, episode 483, Alex Ross's Marvel Timeless Mural, a breakdown, part two. Hey everyone, this is your host, Peter. If you listened to last episode, I laid out my plans for a series of five podcasts I'm doing this week, focusing on the Marvel Timeless Mural, created this year by superstar artist Alex Ross. The Marvel Timeless piece is made up of 35 various characters in a group shot, but Marvel can pull them out individually as well for variant covers or other marketing ideas. Each character was designed to stand on their own, but as a unit, they form a snapshot of Marvel's stable of characters in their most iconic look, complete with attention paid to the various heights, which is pretty cool to see, and uh, I didn't really talk about that last episode. You can see where Wolverine is pretty short. Uh, Colossus is probably the tallest, but only because uh, the Hulk, who is standing right next to Colossus, is slouching. So, uh, and then, of course, everyone else is in between. So last episode, I gave my thoughts on the image as a whole, trying to give context behind the characters that were chosen and for the designs of their various appearances, uh, used all within the theme of Timeless. This episode, for part two, I'm going to start talking about the individual characters, both in their design and the choices that were made, but also to keep with the breakdown theme, more or less, uh, I want to talk about what stories come to mind when I think about each of these characters. Not necessarily their best stories or even my favorite, just the ones that immediately come to mind, either within the timeless theme or just in general. And by all means, once you hear my picks, send me an email or leave a comment with your stories. This could be a good way for all of us to hear about comics that we uh, that maybe we haven't read yet. And... Um, and for this part two, uh, I'm going to start on the right side of the image, starting with the Punisher, and then the Inhumans, Black Bolt and Medusa, Hawkeye, Falcon, and then three of the original X-Men, Angel, Iceman, and the Beast. Okay, let's start with the Punisher. And first off, let's talk about the design of the character. Now, I've never read his first appearance in Amazing Spider-Man 129, but it's kind of clear that the Punisher is sporting Alex Ross's interpretation of that famous cover by Gil Kane and John Romita from 1973. It's the one where he's holding a gun, and he has Spider-Man in his crosshairs, and it's all set against a yellow background. So Ross's Punisher, I feel, has the same kind of look uh, he has the same holster straps on his left boot. Uh, the right hip holster has the same dark coloring. Later versions would change that to be white. And then really the skull image, the skull symbol, is pretty close to that Kane Romita version. Um, it, it kind of makes itself known because the teeth of the skull are made up of ammo here here in the Alex Ross design, uh, which is kind of similar to the 70s era Punisher, uh, as opposed to maybe later versions like the Mike Zek version from the 80s, where the teeth seem to be formed by magazines of a gun rather than just ammo. 
Uh, also, I have to give it to Alex Ross for paying attention to the Punisher's overall build, his hairline, the hairstyle, the shape of the head, the eyebrows even, even right down to a few wisps of hair at the top of his head. It's kind of a spot-on uh, reflection of of that first appearance in Amazing Spider-Man. And man, that's that's attention to detail, and, and I kind of love that. And it really sings when you think about the timeless version. Now, for the stories that come to mind, probably a few of these are obvious. The mid-'80s five-part Punisher limited series by Stephen Grant and Mike Zeck. And then on the last issue, uh, art was done by Mike Vosberg, and that was called Circle of Blood. We have the second Marvel Knights run on the character, which was a 12-issue run by Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon and Jimmy Palmiotti called Welcome Back Frank. That was from 2000. And lastly, oddly enough, the four-issue Punisher Year One miniseries from 1994-1995 by Dan Abnett, Dale Eaglesham, I think Dale's Dale was uh, semi-early in his art career at that point. And yes, I could certainly list Punisher Kills the Marvel Universe, but I honestly can't remember if I read that or not. And if I have read it, I don't remember it. So I'm going to stick just with my first impressions here. So I'm fairly certain the 80s limited, limited series, which was quite popular, is my first exposure to the character, uh, especially because of Mike Zeck and and those covers with Phil Zimmelman. Um, Issue one is just great with his back to the wall, his guns are firing, and there's, there's shots being fired at him, all those trash cans being knocked over all over the place, and his face, right, his face in a rage. That definitely stood out to me on the shelves when I picked it up. And uh, if you look at all the covers, it's funny to see how issue one, uh, it has there, you know, one of a four-part story. But then when you get to issue two, it says five. But then it goes back to being four for three and four until we get a fifth issue where it says five of five. So it's kind of strange how they butchered all that. Um, Inside the story, you can see how Zek updated the look. Um, he no longer has the, the bootstraps, um, the hip holster has turned to white, and that teeth design, which goes to being from ammo to magazines, the, the coloring, the white coloring, now goes all the way around the belt rather than just in inside the skull design. It's been a long time since I read the story, but it's obvious why it stands out. Um, it was, you know... Uh, one of the first major villains of Marvel or or an anti-hero, whatever you want to call him, to get his own title. And uh, it just was a great story from what I remember. Um, I would go on to collect a few of the issues after this miniseries of the ongoing series that spun out from it. And Punisher was writing quite a high at that time. I mean, he would get not only his Punisher series, but then Punisher War Zone and Punisher War Journal. So yeah, he was pretty popular at the time. Now, the Marvel Knight story, the Welcome Back Frank story, uh, especially after reading Preacher, was so great. I mean, it was clearly a well-liked book uh, among all of my comic reading friends at the time. And it was funny. It was over the top. I mean, he punches out a polar bear at one point, which is pretty hysterical. 
I mean, here comes the creative team of Punish of Preacher, uh, riding their high, uh, you know, Garth Ennis, Steve Dillon, and it really was a no-brainer. It really was a no-brainer to put him on, uh, put them on this book. The 2004 Punisher movie with Thomas Jane is loosely based on this story. Now, if you know the Marvel Knights imprint history, the first Punisher mini was only four issues, and it was one of the four titles that helped to start the Marvel Knights line. It had artwork by Bernie Wrightson, but the story was not well-liked. Uh, I think he was an agent of heaven at the time because he, he had been dead, and he had, I don't know, like celestial guns, I think? Yikes, yeah, wasn't very good. Um, by the way, the Tim Bradstreet covers on the Garth Ennis run, for me, is the clearest example of how generic pose covers are not easy to navigate on a title. I mean, you would walk into the store and you would go, wait a minute, don't I already have this? If you threw all 12 of those issues on the floor and mixed them up and, and told me, okay, now you gotta put them in order just by the cover, just by the cover art, yeah, I couldn't do it, so. Uh, I put Punisher Year One on here because I can remember liking it at the time. And I'm fairly certain it's the first time Marvel used that phrase, Year One, as a title concept. I could be wrong. You know, given the popularity of Batman Year One, um, DC has used that phrase a lot. And I used to really like it, and I used to always try to follow it. Um, but it was interesting to see it on a Marvel comic. So I was like, sure, I'll buy it, you know? So if anybody, know, if anybody knows of any prior usage of year one on a cover before the Punisher story, let me know. It's been years since I've read the miniseries, but, uh, and I no longer have the issues, but I can remember reading it at the time. Um, so if you don't know about it, that could be an interesting find. Okay, let's jump to Black Bolt and Medusa. Both members of the Inhumans, and although Medusa appeared earlier in Fantastic Four 36, the design that Ross is using is pretty much capturing her look from uh, Fantastic Four, Four number 45, which was the first appearance of Black Bolt and first appearance of many of the Inhumans. So when Medusa first appeared with the Frightful Four years earlier, um, her mask covered more of her face and her head, except for her hair, of course. It's in her later appearance appearances that she got this look that Alex Ross is using, um, you know, along with that magenta coloring. Um, the forearm bands that she's wearing, where you can see some, you know, they, they look like they have a little bit of a design on it. Uh, all of it reflecting the Kirby original designs, although the Kirby design had um, not only the magenta coloring, but also blue. You know, sometimes she was like dual-toned, and other times she was just one-toned. Black Bolt is fairly similar to his earliest design, but not in coloring. Uh, Ross has him in black with white accents, and in his original Kirby appearances, he was blue, and the accents were lighter blue, and, and that coloring would fluctuate here and there. Um, this black and white version did show up on, on a, one, or two one or two covers for the um, Inhuman 70 series. 
I guess, I guess it's where we are currently with the look, you know, a lot of times he is black with white accents. I'd love to know if there really is like a specific comic where he goes from blue and lighter blue to black and um, white because um, I couldn't find it. I couldn't find in my notes or in some of the research that I did. So if anybody knows, let me know. Really, it probably could all come down to the way uh, comic book coloring goes, right? That, that rule that if you have a black costume, you have blue highlights. And then what happens is eventually down the years, that costume becomes blue, right? And, and the shadows are black. So it's kind of interesting, kind of like what they do with Batman. Uh, Story-wise, uh, for these characters and for the Inhumans as a whole, I read a few of the early Lee and Kirby Inhumans appearances in Fantastic Four. I used to own uh, a lot of the Perez-drawn Inhumans issues from their 70s run, but it's their two Marvel Knights runs that stand out the most to me. The first being 12 issues in uh, 98-99 that is just full of character and mood and and this deep exploration of what it means to be to be an inhuman, uh, especially as they go up against uh, Maximus and and he, regular humans, and there's a war that's almost about ready to start. It's a pretty great story. Uh, Medusa also has a very interesting turn of events in that story. And then there's a second shorter miniseries from 2000, only four issues, by Carlos Pacheco as a writer with Rafael Marin. And the art is by Ladron, although the last issue is by uh, Jorge Pereira Lucas. This miniseries I really liked because it explores more of their connections with the Kree and with space. Uh, you have Ronan the Accuser, you have the Imperial Guard, and the artwork is so good. It's so good. It's stunning. It's, it's Ladron doing, doing Mobius. Um, but with a hint of Kirby underneath. And, and it's just stunning. It's so good. Um, I also want to give a nod to the Black Bolt series from 2017-2018 by Saladin Ahmed and Christian Ward, um, which I think won an Eisner, or at least was nominated. Uh, also a very good series. I, I enjoyed that quite a lot. Okay, let's go to Hawkeye. So unlike with Medusa's coloring... Uh, in this image by Alex Ross, uh, he did keep Hawkeye's dual tone, uh, where you got like this darker blue as a base or indigo, and then uh, a lot of the highlights are purple, um, which very much mirrors Hawkeye's main look as he first appeared in Tales of Suspense 57. Although in that original look, um, uh, the the neckline and the vertical stripes were also blue. Um, they weren't purple just yet. Also, I think Alex Ross doesn't have uh, one of the upper armbands that uh, the character wore in a lot of those earlier appearances. The other thing Alex Ross does is he keeps the quiver and bow to the original yellow coloring, which is pretty cool, but not the strap of the quiver. The strap is purple, unlike the original first appearance. Um, I also like that the strap is over the right shoulder, which means that the arrows most likely are facing the right shoulder, which makes sense because 
if Clint is holding his bow, his his bow in the left hand, he he's going to need his right hand free to grab an arrow, and he would do that over his right shoulder. So it kind of makes sense there. That's me being real picky. Um, also, the tunic that Alex Ross has Hawkeye in ends in more of a skirt design, which is exactly like the first appearance. Later versions of Hawkeye, that skirt would turn into more of like a tabard effect, uh, where it would just be in the front and then the back. Story-wise, you know, I'm not the biggest Hawkeye fan, but my Hawkeye reading starts with, again, uh, the 80s, uh, the two 80s miniseries that I always liked and always come right to mind when I think of this character. First off, the four-issue self-titled miniseries from 1983 by Mark Grunewald. That's my, I'm pretty sure that's my introduction to the character and to Mockingbird and several other Marvel villains. Um, this miniseries is where Clint would lose partial hearing. And then the first West Coast Avengers mini in 1984 by Roger Stern and Bob Hall. Yes, I said West Coast Avengers, not Avengers West Coast. I don't like what they when they flip it. Um, I was reading Avengers during this time, but for some reason, this spinoff became more of a favorite. And uh, during this time, Hawkeye was sporting um, a costume that was similar to the mural, but now he had long sleeves. And on the uh, left arm, on his bow arm, he had a longer glove, so it was kind of like a guard. Uh, and I believe that's the look that he wore in Secret Wars as well. Now, that 80s characterization of the character as a solo character, as a leader of misfits, uh, probably is why I really enjoyed my next recommendation, which is Hawkeye as a leader of the Thunderbolts, starting with issue 20 in 1998 by Kurt Busiek and Mark Bagley and uh, Fabian Nicieza. His characterization, I just felt like he really felt like he belonged in that book. Um, you know, especially because his origins as a villain and then he becomes a hero and it's exactly what the Thunderbolts were. I, it just made sense. And uh, I really appreciated his inclusion in the book. And um, I just love that volume. So that's a strong recommendation for me. Okay, Falcon. All right, we're definitely getting the most iconic Marvel Comics look for Sam in this mural, I think, you know, to speak, speaking about timeless, right? That, that kind of makes sense. Um, he's worn this red and white look with variations for a long time. Uh, it's the, the costume that has the red pants, the white base, and uh, a lot of red accents, the little yellow symbol on his forehead, uh, along his white mask. When you look at Alex Ross's individual character entry, for Falcon, you can also see that he's wearing the red glider wings, and uh, he also put in his pet red wing. Falcon first appeared in 1969 in Captain America 117, although his design by Gene Colan was green and yellow. The red and white version of the character first appeared in Captain America 144 from 1971 as drawn by Gray Morrow in a backup tale, which was a surprise to me. Uh, the designs along the shoulders and the um, 
along the waist weren't as pronounced as they would become. And he only had one glove at the time, which I guess makes sense if he's a falcon with a pet falcon. And he had no wings. He didn't get those until Captain America 170 in 1974, drawn by Sal Buscema. And this final look from 1974 is what Alex Ross is using. Uh, The character now gets two gloves. The designs on the tunic are moving more to what we would be more familiar with. Um, And that's the look that he would carry over uh, to the first comic that uh, I would recommend, the first one that comes to mind. This is, again, a no-brainer, another 80s miniseries, Falcon 1 through 4 from 1983 by Christopher Priest under his James Owsley name. Art by Paul Smith on issue one and Mark Bright for the rest. It's really that Paul Smith cover uh, from issue one that got me. You know, Falcon all battered, up against the wall, same thing like the Punisher. Uh, and, And then issue two where he's being held by a sentinel. Just really great artwork on those covers. Another series I uh, I would recommend, uh, Captain America and Falcon from 2004-2005 that ran for 14 issues, spinning out of the Avengers Disassembled event, I think. Also by Priest, this time with art by Bart Sears and Joe Bennett and others. Christopher Priest could do no wrong in my eyes in those days, and uh, I just really enjoyed um, that volume. And finally, let's go to the trio of Angel, Iceman, and Beast. For Angel, the red-white design with the halo symbol being used by Alex Ross dates back to X-Men 62 from 1969 by Neil Adams, although in that first version, given to Warren Worthington by Magneto in The Savage Land, the costume was blue and white. The red-white version along with the yellow gloves and boots, which you can just about make out in the Alex Ross uh, drawing. That version is from Champions number 8 in 1976 with Bob Hall on pencils. So apparently in that story, um, whatever costume Warren was wearing, it gets trashed, so they have to come up with a new one. And the Champions apparently have a publicist, So they go back to the uh, Neil Adams design, but they get the coloring wrong. And that's in the story that the publicist gets the coloring wrong and they make it red and white. How weird is that, right? Um, Warren would wear this costume in the Dark Phoenix saga along with the yellow boots and gloves. Now, Iceman is a little tricky. Um, He had had the hard ice look for a while in the early X-Men days, you know, after going from, like, looking like a snowman. Um, But it's with issue 39 from 1967, where all of the X-Men graduate out of their Kirby costumes to whatever look they were wearing at that time. So Bobby had had shorts before and boots, but now he gets gloves. I don't really know what version Alex Ross is channeling here, um... I don't know, I guess Iceman is pretty standard. There's a part of me that also wonders if he isn't inspired a bit by the Amazing Spider-Friends cartoon version. I could see that. Um, All right, so then Beast. So we're going with the Furry Beast, which first appeared in Amazing Adventures number 11, 1972. uh, Interior art by Tom Sutton. 
Apparently, this was an idea by Roy Thomas to term, turn him into a furry character. But in those stories, he was gray. And then in Amazing Adventures 15, also from 72, also with Sutton on the art, this is where his fur goes from gray to black. That's right, black, not blue. In the dialogue from Beast himself, he says that my fur has turned black. So again, like I mentioned with Black Bolt, it seems like this is, uh, you know, that whole comic book notion that the character was black, but maybe had some blue highlights. And then somewhere down the road, it gets changed to the reverse. And suddenly his fur is blue, you know, but the original dialogue was meant to be black. And I kind of like that Ross's version feels like a mixture of, um, of, of blue, black, and gray, you know? It's kind of muddy. And uh, maybe that's to suggest that, um, that it is meant to be black, but, but it has those blue highlights. Um, I don't know. Um, it also makes me wonder if um, he's channeling uh, a lot of the John Byrne design when it comes to the build and to the face. Um, the way the head shape is, that, that, that broad square version, feels very similar to Amazing Adventures, but not as shaggy. Um, so, yeah, this is, a, this is a pretty timeless version of all three of those characters. Story-wise, individually, I don't have much to say for each of the, character, each of the characters. I mean, I have a soft spot for the Beauty and Beast Beauty and the Beast miniseries, again from the 80s, that featured Beast and Dazzler. But for me, these three represent my fondness for the new Defenders run that I read uh, in the 80s, starting with issue 129. So the title changed to, to uh, New Defenders in 125. This would be around 1983. And we're talking, you know, J.M. DeMatteis, Peter Gillis, Don Perlin, and others. Um... But this is where I really read these characters for the first time, you know, um, along with Valkyrie and Gargoyle, Moon Dragon, Cloud, definitely a bizarre run of stories. I can remember reading and liking that manslaughter uh, issue and that character it was pretty creepy. Uh, I never finished the volume, though, so I don't ever know. I don't know what happened. I think they went up against Moon Dragon and Gargoyle, but I never finished it. But yeah, that's where I came across those three characters, and it wasn't until uh, the original X-Men became X-Factor, that's when I, you know, really got a sense of who those original five were. And then beyond that, I don't really have anything else. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm just not a fan of those three characters. Doesn't mean I, I hate them, I just, you know, they showed up here and there. They showed up as X-Men, they showed up as Avengers... Um, Angel had a romance with Psylocke, you know, uh, there was the Dark Beast from Age of Apocalypse, uh, you know, they work as a team. They, they don't, I guess they don't really stand out as individuals to me. All right, that's it for part two. Next episode, I'm going to look at, again, going from the right, Cyclops and Phoenix, Doctor Strange, Nightcrawler and Colossus, Black Panther, Black Widow, Wolverine, Captain America, and the Hulk. That's a lot of characters, so I'm going to have to talk fast. <laughs> all right, let me know what you think. Um, this is really all I wanted to do. I just wanted to talk about their designs, talk about maybe some of the decisions um, behind their appearances from Alex Ross, 
and then rattle off some quick thoughts about, you know, some comics that I liked featuring these characters. Email me, peter at thedailyreels.com, or leave a comment on the website. I want to hear what you have to think about my picks and your own picks. I have an update about Operation Rebuild, my fundraiser for a new laptop. While I was recording yesterday's episode and releasing it, we jumped to 27%, which is just awesome. Um, Again, thank you. I am so, so grateful. And I'm definitely inspired uh, and hopeful for for the drive to succeed. Um, Remember, you can just send out a, a tweet or retweet if that's all you can do. And originally, I really only, I mean, I asked for um, the price of a comic, $3.99. If that's all you can do, awesome. You know, obviously, I've been getting uh, donations that are a lot higher than that. And and it's just really been amazing and touching. Um, but I get it. You know, times are strange right now, and people are understandably, um, you know, unable to help and, and totally get that. If you can do a price of a comic, awesome. If you can do more, awesome. If you can do a tweet, that is awesome as well. All right, this has been The Daily Rios, episode 483 for Tuesday, August 4th. Talk to you soon.